All right. It would be easy to think of the Beatitudes that Jesus teaches on the Sermon on the Mount. You probably know some of these. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Maybe I need to teach these Beatitudes. (laughs) Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. This is probably the most popular. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. So you've got all those Beatitudes, which are, uh, there's a lot of meaning in those. There were some years ago, I mean, way, way back last century, I taught through the Gospel of Matthew, so we would have covered all that. And then a good number of years after that, there was a, a special series I did where we went through just the Sermon on the Mount, and we would have covered the Beatitudes a second time. But the most popular blessing, I think, in all of the Bible, is not found in the New Testament. It's found in the Old Testament. And it is a blessing that the Aaronic priesthood gave to the people. And people commonly still use it today. It's found in the book of Numbers. It reads, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. It's a very familiar and popular blessing in all of the Bible, but that's not where I want to go either. I want to go to some blessings that are found actually in the book of Psalms. There are beatitudes in the Psalms, though they're tucked away in lots of little different places. They're not grouped together, and so it would be easy to miss that they are the Old Testament equivalent to a beatitude. So I'm going to give you a sampling before we settle down. Beatitudes in the Psalms look something like Psalm 144, Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. Blessed are those people. Another beatitude would be in 128. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in His ways. A person who fears the Lord rightly, walks in His ways, is a blessed person. Psalm 106. Blessed are they who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. Somebody who pursues a path of justice in all of their dealings, in all of their relationships, and it doesn't depend on who they're speaking with. That they treat everybody the same. They don't regard the face. They do justice. Observe justice. Those are beatitudes. A beatitude is found in 94. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law. Now, the discipline in our culture, we typically use that to mean correction, and it certainly includes correction, but the Lord's discipline is much broader than mere correction. It includes the teaching and instruction and building up and steering people in the right, good direction. That's all a a positive discipline. And the person who is disciplined by the Lord is experiencing the blessing of the Lord. There's a beatitude in Psalm 84, actually two. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praises. And then there's what is believed to be a musical notation, a selah, selah. And it's, it's just to pause and reflect on that. What it would mean to dwell in the Lord's house, especially in the Old Testament. It would be associated with the tabernacle and after that the temple. And to be singing His praise. Verse 5, blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. Again, it has the idea of going to the house of the Lord, the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, and praising God. 
What a special time that is. How, how blessed they, the Israelites were to be able to do that in Psalm 84. There's a beatitude in 41. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. There's a beatitude associated with considering the poor. And that's considering not with the idea of looking down, but considering the poor in the sense that you share your resources with. There's a beatitude in Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. That's a beatitude or a a blessing that's actually repeated by Paul in his letter to the Romans. When your sin is covered, when your transgression is taken away, how blessed is that? To have your sin, guilt, and shame, and the penalty associated with that, removed from you, that is to be blessed. Now, if you've kind of paid attention to the non-particulars, you've noticed a certain trend going through the Psalms, which will lead us to the last beatitude that I want to settle on, and that is the trend was I started at the end and I'm moving back to the beginning. So the beatitude that I actually want to camp on is the very first Psalm, which contains a blessing or a beatitude. Turn to Psalm chapter 1. If you're using a pew Bible, you will find that on page 448. Psalm 1. I think it's a good psalm for the beginning of the year. Before I read the psalm, I want to define the word blessing. In Hebrew, there are two verbs that are translated to bless or to be blessed. Uh, I'm going to turn, if I turn it into a noun, it would be a beatitude. Where a blessing could be a noun as well as a verb. According to, uh, in the Hebrew, it translates over. The first blessing is called, is transliterated Barak. I didn't check it out, but I'm highly confident that former President Barack Obama was named after that word for blessing. Uh, whether it's out of Hebrew or Aramaic, it's probably the same. Uh, but he would be named after he was blessed. The parents felt blessed or named their child a blessing that the Lord had given them. The second word is translated asar. Those are the two words that are used. According to our friend, the theological word book of the Old Testament, there are some key distinctions between the two blessings. It looks something like this. The first blessing, Barak, is a blessing that God bestows, and it's the only kind of blessing He bestows. The theological word book Uh, made the point that from the lips of God, he never utters the Asar blessing. From the lips of God, when he pronounces a blessing, it's always the first variety, a Barak blessing. This blessing is pronounced at his initiative, and it really is pronounced uh, irrespective of what you have or have not done. It's more closely associated with grace. A blessing out of God's goodness and grace. That's the first type of blessing. The second type of blessing is something that is, is experienced if you do something. You have to participate in this blessing. All of the Psalms I just read are blessings of the second variety. You have to engage in a certain behavior or lifestyle or thinking and you receive a blessing. It's a... Well, I won't say that. Secondly, 
The first type of a blessing is more likened to a benediction, which in, in a, a very liturgical church, or every church is liturgical on some level, but a church that offers a benediction at the end, or sings a benediction at the end. Uh, if it's technically a benediction, it's a, it's a blessing bestowed by God out of His goodness and His grace that you're sharing, not a blessing uh, that you receive based upon how you've chosen to implement or be consistent with what God has said is true. The second type of blessing where you participate in is likened more to a congratulation, or I might add the word reward. The first blessing is, is holy of God based on His grace. The second blessing is a reward or a congratulation based upon the choices you've made. And that's the type of blessing we're actually reading about in Psalm chapter 1. The word bless conveys the idea of happiness that flows from a sense of well-being and rightness. There are any number of Bible translations that when it comes to the word, whether it's in Hebrew or Greek, New Testament Greek, they often translate the word happy. And, and usually commentators say, it does... Happiness isn't foreign to the idea of blessing, but happiness seems uh, more superficial than what a blessing really is. It's more than just being happy. It's, uh, it's a sense of well-being and rightness that you do experience a happiness out of that, but it's deeper than just a, a superficial or a surface happiness. I'll read the psalm. That's what the screen says to do. Psalm chapter 1, follow along if you can. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. That's our psalm that we're going to look at. We're going to spend more time on the very beginning of the psalm than we do at the end of the psalm. Let me go over some general observations. Psalm 1 typically or commonly is grouped with or linked with Psalm 2. They're a pair. They belong together. The, the Psalms, the book of Psalms, 150, they weren't haphazardly arranged. They were very intentionally arranged. Arranged. And Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are intentionally grouped together. One commentator actually described it. I'm not sure if I can find uh, Like a tailor, the two Psalms are carefully stitched together. And there's lots of little verbal clues as to how these two psalms are meant to complement one another and are meant to tell the whole story. They're non-traditional psalms. Typically, if you think of a psalm, you should be thinking of, this is what the congregation of Israel prayed and or sang. It's what the people of God prayed and what they sang. But Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are neither prayers nor songs. Psalms 1 and 2 are declarations. They're statements. They're confessions of faith. 
Psalms 1 and 2. And so those first two Psalms set the stage or provide a lens for all the subsequent Psalms. All the other Psalms, beginning with Psalm 3 and continuing through Psalm 150, it is all, uh, they are experiences of different individuals, David more than anybody else. And, the, and David experienced highs and David experienced lows. He's saying song, Psalms of highest praise. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. But then there were other times where he felt forsaken by the Lord. And Psalms 1 and 2 are meant to provide the lens by which you interpret your experiences. Because what is true in Psalm 1 and 2 is true regardless of your experience. And your experience may not reflect the truth of Psalm 1 and 2, but the truth of Psalm 1 and 2 stands. And it's set at the beginning so that you have a way to engage all the remaining songs and prayers that come afterward. Psalm chapter 1 is classified as a wisdom psalm. Wisdom meaning it's much like uh, the book of Proverbs at the beginning. If you've read the book of Proverbs, you know that most of Proverbs are long lists of single verses, and each of those verses has a proverb or maybe even two. But they're just rapid fire. Each one stands alone. But the book of Proverbs starts off with some narrative, with some storytelling. And one of the things Saul, uh, the book of Proverbs does, I think it's Proverbs chapter 9, it describes two paths, two ways. There's Lady Wisdom who calls out, and there's the Woman Folly who calls out. And people have to make a choice who they're going to hear. Well, that's, that's largely what Psalm 1 is. Psalm 1 presents two paths, two ways you can go. Two individuals are calling to you. So much like the book of Proverbs begins, that's how Psalm chapter 1 starts. The relationship with chapter 2 looks something like this. If you have your Bible open, I'm going to pick out just a couple of things that are, I think, uh, particularly interesting. Psalm 1 begins, blessed is the man, and then it finishes, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Verse, uh, the last verse of Psalm chapter 2 ends... Blessed are those who take refuge in Him. So they're kind of bookends. Psalm 1 starts with a blessing. Psalm 2 ends with a blessing. And they complement one another. In Psalm chapter 1 and verse 2, it describes the man who, uh, on God's law, he meditates day and night. He meditates on God's law day and night. That same word is translated differently in chapter 2 where chapter 2 and verse 2 says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The peoples meditate in vain. So you've got the righteous person, the one blessed by God, he's meditating on God's law. You've got the nations of the earth set against God, and they're meditating too. But it's in vain, because whatever they are meditating on and hope to accomplish will fall short. You've got things like the, the two ways or the two paths, which are very evident in the first psalm. In chapter uh, 2, you've also got these two possibilities. Verse 12 reads in chapter 2, Kiss the son lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. 
So just, I want you to recognize the similarity between the two Psalms. I would be half tempted to do Psalm 2 next week, but I'm not really planning on it. But there is a relationship. Let's go to the first verse. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So, the blessing that is experienced by this man, and it is a singular masculine, but it's not exclusive to men. It's just picking out somebody for the, for the sake of what he's trying to declare. So, it does have the idea of a person, but this blessed person, this blessed man, he avoids and shuns certain things. He avoids a certain way of thinking, the counsel of the wicked. He avoids a, a certain way in which to stand, and he, he avoids a certain seat. He belongs to a different crowd. The people that he hangs with that are his, his most intimate uh, friends that speak into his life. It's different for him, this blessed man, this righteous man, than, than the individual who doesn't recognize God in all of his, uh, his wisdom and his power and his glory and how he's chosen to reveal himself. So he avoids those things. Another way to look at it, because a lot of commentators wonder if there isn't meant to be a progression. I'm not convinced it's meant to be a progression, but to give, uh, to at least throw out the possibility. Some commentators see that there's a difference between walking, standing, and sitting. That uh, the first temptation is to interact intermittently or impermanently, as you engage the walk of life, you allow yourself to be influenced by their counsel. Standing would be uh, to pause and to spend more time with than just an intermittent interaction. And then to sit is to, to settle down and park there and start thinking and acting like somebody who doesn't recognize God for who he is, and you start doing that as well. So some recognize or believe there's a progression in verse 1. Uh, be that as it may. Here's what I think I do know. These are the takeaways that I think are very obvious. Number one, my walk is determined and affected by my thinking. How you think is, uh, will determine how you walk. And what you spend your time thinking and allowing to come into your mind whether you intend for it to be that way or not, it does affect your worldview. Uh, our culture, people that are in power in our culture understand this very well. Because they, are, they will uh, bombard you with a certain message because they know if they bombard you with a certain message often enough and long enough, it will affect the culture. And there will become an accepted way to think and an unacceptable way to think. So what you allow to come into your mind, what you spend your time thinking about, affects, affects your walk. It affects the way in which you go. Secondly, a blessed or righteous person carefully discerns the counsel of others. We'll pause and think in, in every aspect of life, in every science, in sociology, in psychology, in theology, in church, no matter what anybody says on, in the news media, in government, what anybody is telling you, I want to know where are they getting that from. How do they know that's true? What is their source of truth? What do they think about the nature of humanity and man? 
psychology, there's a huge difference in counseling. There's a huge difference between, between counselors who think people are basically good and people who have a fundamental sin problem. You're going to approach counseling very differently based on those two worldviews. And you're going to arrive at different solutions to different problems based upon those two worldviews. I have, I have learned to believe that there are a lot of straw houses out there. I trust very little of what I see or hear in, in mainstream media. I don't care whether it's Fox Media or whether it's uh, NBC, ABC, CBS. I think news media uh, streams have a certain agenda, as I think our government does. And that things get manipulated and, and distorted, and I don't trust what they say. The only thing I know for certain is true is God's Word. That's where I start with. I believe that is absolutely true for every age, every era, every people group. And so if whatever I'm hearing contradicts what is in God's Word, I'm going to, take my, I'm going to put my chips on God's Word as standing true at the end of the day. So I think there are a lot of strong men out there. I think there's a lot of manipulation out there where facts are manipulated, facts, uh, understanding. Think in astronomy. Astronomers all the time... Uh, are discovering the origins of our universe, how it all started. And, and they've got it pinpoint back how far, and, and these are the ages, and how everything evolved, and this happened at such, such and such a time. 300 million years ago, we made this transition, and on and on it goes. On and on it goes. And sometimes it's intentional, denying what is true. Sometimes it's unintentional what is presented. I'm not saying everybody's a, got a diabolical plot, but I think there are those out there as well. This is true not only in secular culture, it can be true in the church. Just because somebody can open a Bible and string together different Bible verses, they may not be teaching God's Word for what it actually says. That's the serious danger of topical Bible teaching. Topical Bible teaching is not entirely bad. It's just not entirely bad. There's a place for it. But, topical Bible teaching tends to string pearls on a necklace to arrive at a certain conclusion. I've got a, uh, one of my better pastor friends, easily, uh, he posted in the very large pastors group that we're both in, over a thousand pastors, and, uh, well, I won't... He, he posted this, to my pre-tribulational, pre-millennial, dispensational brothers, I'm wanting to teach through the book of Revelation next year. Can you recommend a curriculum that would fill the bill? Thanks in advance. Now, starters, pre-tribulationalism may be right. Pre-millennialism may be right. Dispensationalism may be right. But if I go to the book of Revelation saying, I know where I want to land, give me the books that are going to tell me that I land in that spot, I think that's a bad place to be. I would much rather, and I would much rather, if you're going to teach the book of Revelation, teach the book of Revelation. And find out where it may challenge you, where uh, you thought you knew the scheme, and it turns out your scheme wasn't as perfect as you thought you knew it. I'm pretty sure everybody's scheme is off, including mine. I like to believe I'm, I'm spot on, but it hasn't happened yet. I think there's going to be surprises. So... Topical teaching is dangerous. Walter Kaiser Jr., I forget where he's from because this is coming off the top of my head. Uh, he wrote a book on exegetical theology. 
exegetical theology. In other words, most people are familiar with systematic theology. That is, you take all the parts and you put them together. Uh, if you've got to build something after Christmas, you take all the parts and you put it together and you've got this whatever you built and it looks just fine and dandy. But before with the Bible we assemble all the parts, we better make sure we understand the part, what it's for. Just because you've screwed it together and put a bolt between the two or glued it up doesn't mean it's where it belongs. And so exegetical theology says, or biblical theology says, before we arrange the parts, let's just teach the parts. Let's just teach the Bible as it's written, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. And then when you begin to have an understanding of that, certainly start arranging the parts. They're complementary. But you start with verse by verse before you arrange it in a particular system. It's very interesting, the men's book that we're doing at breakfast is Run with the Horses by Eugene Peterson. And when we met a week and a half or so ago, uh, the chapters we did, there was the most fascinating line in there which really gripped me about uh, this concept of discerning what is true and not true. And it's uh, a line that he quoted from George Eliot. George Eliot was a pen name. It was a, a woman author. And he quotes something that she wrote in a book, which I forget the title, but you'll see it in a second. The book is Felix Holt. Eugene Peterson wrote, It is always easier to complain about problems than to engage in careers of virtue. George Eliot, in her novel Felix Holt, has a brilliant comment. Quote, Everything's wrong, says he. That's a big text. But does he want to make everything right? Not he. He'd lose the text. Now, what's really interesting by that is that book, Felix Holt, was written in 1866. I've never read George Eliot, so I didn't know how old it was. That's amazing to me that in 1866, she's perceiving or recognizing that people have an agenda when they present their truth. And they don't really intend to solve the problem. If the problem were solved, they would lose their platform. Please understand that happens in our culture all the time. It happens in church as well. Because sometimes in churches, people have platforms. I run the risk of having a platform. That you have to come to me for truth when in fact you are set free. You've got a Bible. Read your Bible. And if I'm wrong, then so be it. Call me out as being wrong. Privately on the side before we make it public. Lots of people don't intend to solve problems. They mean to fuel the fire, because that's what keeps the platform going. All right, so that's uh, takeaway 1B. Blessed are the righteous, a blessed righteous person carefully discerns the counsel of others. Number two, a blessed righteous person is willing to stand out from and take a different path. Uh, Blessed is the man who does not stand in the way of sinners. This person recognizes that Jesus taught there is a broad way that leads to destruction. It's easy to take that course. And there's a narrow way that leads to life. A blessed person is somebody who understands there are two ways. And if you take the narrow way, it will cost you something. It will cost you something. It may cost how you spend your time. It may cost where your dollars go. It may cost a friendship or a relationship. It will cost something, because the narrow way isn't meant to be easy. 
But there's a blessing attached to taking that narrow way. So a blessed person stands out from and takes a different path. Thirdly, a blessed or a righteous person does not sit in the seat of scoffers. To be a scoffer is somebody who is overly critical, who is overly demeaning to other people, overly judgmental. Now, there are certain things that the church cannot compromise on. I mean, we could recite the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. And you know what? That's not up for grabs. What the church has handed down to us is a treasure. It is true. It has always been true. But there are lots of areas in which Christians have a certain amount of freedom and liberty and that there will be differences as to how those liberties and freedoms may be applied. And if I think I've got all the truth and everybody's got to do it my way, I become a scoffer when I start criticizing everybody else's ministry and everybody else's church because it's not just like the way I want to have a ministry or the way that I want to do church. That's a problem. A blessed person does not sit in the seat of scoffers. There's a proverb. This is in your Bibles. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 24. It reads, Scoffer is the name of the arrogant, haughty man who acts with arrogant pride. Somebody who is overly judgmental and critical is haughty with pride. Because they don't recognize how little they know. They just proclaim how much they think they know. If all I do is proclaim what I think I know, and I judge everybody else who disagrees with me, I'm telling you, I'm not a blessed person. I'm a dangerous person. That's number three. Here's what the blessed man does instead. We've seen what he doesn't do. Here's what he does do. A blessed person, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Now, verse 2 does not sound like Paul's experience in Romans chapter 7. If you've read Romans through ever, uh, you'll remember there's this part in Romans chapter 7 where Paul talks about the things that I want to do, I don't do. And the things that I don't want to do, I find that those are the things I do. And he struggles with this, this man of sin in his life, this propensity to do the wrong thing. He's battling back and forth. Here you've got the psalmist delighting in the law of the Lord. And the difference is this. If you go to the law of the Lord and you think that that law will impart life if you do certain things and avoid other things, that is within your control to attain righteousness by your obedience to the law, you will find it damns you. If you understand you are saved by the free grace of an almighty God, now the law gives you a path of life that you will enjoy blessing in as you walk in it. It is not the giver of life, but it is the blessing that you experience once you have the life. In the Bible, the word translated law is the word Torah. It oftentimes refers to the first five books of of Moses, the law, but it also refers to all of the Old Testament. It's the counsel of God. It's the teaching of God. Torah depicts the fullness of God's teaching. It is a way of life or a lifestyle that results from redemption, salvation by grace. It is not what saves you, but having been saved by grace, it provides the path in which you can experience life to its fullest with God's safeguards in place. It also talks about he meditates on God's law day and night. 
the word meditate has this definition. It means to rehearse, repent, go over a matter in one's mind. Another commentator defines it as to whisper or murmur. To meditate on something is the opposite of Eastern religion where you empty your mind and you try to think of nothing. You, you, the goal is to allow nothing in. In Christianity, the goal is to put the right things in and to mull them over and to think about them and to rehearse them, to keep them at the forefront of your mind. That's Christian meditation. That's what the psalmist is talking about. About uh, three and a half years ago, I think it was, we went over this word meditation. We were in Psalm 119 for a little while. I showed you a series of quotes. So I'm going to revisit some of those quotes from, I think it was, I'll call it three years ago. They read like this. Andrew Bonar wrote, The idea of meditation is to get into the middle of a thing. Meditation is to the mind what digestion digestion is to the body. Unless the food be digested, the the body receives no benefit. Similarly, there must be that mental digestion known as meditation to receive spiritual benefit. I mean, hopefully when we gather as a church, whether it's Uh, for Sunday school and or the worship service, and you hear the Bible taught, you're being presented some truth. But that truth needs to be digested. You can't do it right now. You can take it in, but you've got to work on the digestion part as you leave this place. Other quotes. Blaise Pascal, the famous French mathematician, wrote, All the troubles of life come upon us because we refuse to sit quietly for a while each day in our rooms. Now, he wrote that back in the 1600s. And because there's nothing new under the sun, I suppose they had every imaginal distraction as well. It's hard to believe it would uh, parallel the amount of distractions we have in our culture. Because I I spend a little bit of time... uh, you know, on my news feed or my phone or uh, I still have a Facebook account. You know, so I can spend a little time. I know how often they're trying to push me to find new friends and, and check this link out and look at this story and on. And it just keeps bombarding you. Have you seen this? Do you know about this? On and on it's pushing. And Blaise Pascal is saying, you know what? There's a lot of value in just sitting quietly in your room and meditating on what really matters. Don't be so caught up in what, your, what our culture says. You need to know about this that you really lose what the Bible says. No, this is where your foundation is. This is the lens by which you interpret all of life. Thomas A. Kempis wrote The Imitation of Christ or something like that. He wrote, There are many persons who desire a contemplative life, but they will not practice the things that lead to it. If you want the benefits of meditation, you've got to meditate. If you want the benefits of what God's Word, how it can frame all of life, you've actually got to expose yourself to God's Word and some of those practices. Philip Henry, it is easier to go six miles to hear a sermon than to spend one quarter of an hour in meditating on it when I come home. I think the last quote I have is by F.W. Robertson. It is not the number of books you read, nor the variety of sermons you hear, nor the amount of religious conversation in which you mix, but it is the frequency and earnestness with which you meditate on these things till the truth in them becomes your own and part of your being that ensures your growth. 
I mean, you can expose, you can read all these wonderful theology books, and they're they're good in their own right. All these books about Christian life and Christian living and Christian practice. But if all you do is just fill your mind with all these tidbits of information and knowledge, but it's never put into practice into real life relationships and real life decisions, then what's the point? Mary did this in Luke's Gospel. Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. I love how uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, is described as she meets with the shepherds and she meets with the wise men and, and she has these experiences when she takes uh, the baby to the temple at the appropriate time, how she keeps treasuring up these things because one day it's going to benefit her greatly. They weren't just these passing moments. that like, I don't, I don't remember stuff. I mean, uh, Ryan was telling me a story just the other day. Where, Do you remember when this happened a couple of years ago? And I'm like, no, I, I don't remember that. Uh, Mary, these, these certain things that mattered, these key moments, she treasured them up in her heart. And she found them to be invaluable treasures later on in her life. I would say I'm convinced. So here's my summary. Meditation describes the intentional discipline of remembering what God has said in order to apply the truth to one's own life circumstances. It doesn't do any good to remember all the verses if you can't apply them to your own life circumstances. That's why it's there. That's meditation. It's the act or the process of engaging what God has said so that you're able to apply it to the difficulties and circumstances of life. All right, how often should we do this? I think it was Charles Spurgeon that said, at least twice a day. After all, the psalm says day and night. Uh, which kind of is an allusion back to creation. Uh, Psalm chapter 1 in this introduction to all the rest of the Psalms in some ways is like Genesis chapter 1. There was evening and there was morning the first day. How should we meditate? How often? I mean, Paul talks about pray without ceasing. I don't think that means you're all the time got your eyes closed and you're praying and you can't talk, engage with anybody. It means there's no inappropriate time where you can't bring this back to mind and engage with it and and purpose to remember it. Meditating day and night. That takes us to verse 3. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. You've got three things that I'm going to do very quickly. Number one, the person that is blessed like this, that pursues these things, experiences a certain security and stability in life where he can withstand the storms of life. The person that experiences the the lifestyle of blessing described in verses 1 and 2, that person experiences a fruitfulness of life. It will make a difference. And then he also experiences a prosperity when it's all said and done. It doesn't mean that everything you ever wished for comes true. It means you experience the confidence that God works all things together for good. The prosperity of life. By contrast, in verse 4, the wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Rather than a a tree planted by streams of water yielding fruit, the wicked are like chaff. They're not grounded in anything, and they're not really good for anything, and the wind blows them away because they pursued the wrong thing. But it's really interesting in verse 4, though that's how we translate it because that's how we speak and read, In verse 4, the way it's written in the Hebrew, the real emphasis is on the not so. 
So it doesn't read the wicked are not so. It rather reads in Hebrew, not so the wicked. Now Psalm 73, and there's other Psalms that make it sound like, well, I can look at, I can look at somebody who doesn't gather with the church on a Sunday. I can look at somebody who uh, doesn't regard the things of God. I can look at somebody who, who doesn't spend time reading their Bible or spend time in prayer. I can look at somebody like, and it seems like everything's well for them. And the psalmist in Psalm 73 works through that process. Because he envies the wicked. He says, I find myself envying the wicked. And God takes him through the process where he sees his end and he says, he recognizes, no, in fact, they're, they are chaff. They're living a dreams world, in a dream world, and it doesn't end well. So, not so the wicked. They're like chaff that the wind drives away. And then, verses 5 and 6, Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. There are two ways. There's the way of life, the way of the righteous, and there's the way that leads to destruction, to perishing. If I live my entire life and, I can, and at the end of the day they say at my funeral, he did it his way, I can tell you where I end up and it's not good. Nobody in the kingdom of heaven did it their way. I like what Mike Drew said way back in the day. You know, he passed away a little over a year ago. Uh, maybe it's coming up on two years now. Mike Drew said back in the day, nobody makes their peace with God. You receive God's peace. You don't make peace with God. If peace is on your terms, you haven't, you've made peace in your own mind, but it's not with God. You don't make peace with God. God makes peace with you in Christ by faith. So there are two ways. Martin Luther said, God does not need your works. He has enough in your faith. However, he wants you to have them done so that through them you can demonstrate your faith to yourself and to all the world. Your salvation isn't derived from your works, is derived by your faith in what Christ has done in His work. But Christians are called to good works. They are called to bear fruit because it evidences God's work of grace in our life and it evidences God's truth to the lives of other people that still need to hear the gospel. So there's the way of the righteous. There's also the congregation of the righteous, which is... God's people gathering together. It's the church isn't the building. It's the people sitting in the pew who know God through faith in Christ. There's the congregation of the righteous. God has called individual Christians into a congregation because there's a blessing associated with the congregation of the righteous. Because what you know about God and what you've experienced as God's goodness and sufficiency of His mercy to you is what I need to hear. And you need to hear it from other people and from me as well. It's a shared experience. Because no one person can draw out all the beauty of what God has done by faith in Christ. Augustine said, If one is born to the everlasting inheritance of God as his Father, he is born of the bowels of the church. God's salvation, salvific grace, his his. The forgiveness of sins brings you into a community of other forgiven sinners. And we celebrate God's work of grace among us. And then you've got the Lord's Supper because the congregation of the righteous remembers all these things when we gather together for the Lord's Supper. We're remembering what He's done and what He's promised to do. We remember life is short. 
And life has both ups and downs, as you read about in the Psalms. But we've got, we've got this uh, map right at the beginning, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, that sets the way for us so that we can chart our course even through difficult waters, knowing that whatever we experience in this life is only temporary. And it will be superseded when Christ comes back in power and glory or we are resurrected from the grave. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, but our bodies will be resurrected. And we will experience the fullness of all that God has done in Christ. There's a wonderful little hymn in your hymnal. Number 427, this will set the stage for where we want to be celebrating the Lord's Supper, after which Sarah and I will serve you. If you want to step out the center aisle, and then uh, go back the side aisles. Actually, I wonder, uh, Randy and Sonia, can you guys do one side and I'll do the other side?